We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The letters that Civil War soldiers wrote home are a wonderful source of insight into what happened during the four years of Civil War. Historians have used them for the last century and a half. James McPherson in For Causes and Comrades writes that he looked at 30,000 such letters to write that book. But in looking at the letters, have we occasionally overlooked the container for the thing contained? Our guest today has not. Stephen R. Boyd has written Patriotic Envelopes of the Civil War, the iconography of Union and Confederate covers. And we'll look at that interesting topic today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Follow the World Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at World Talk Radio. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the World Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash World Talk Radio or follow along with us at World Talk Radio, the World Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful but cool Friday afternoon in March of 2011 from the Brewster Building, third floor, A-Wing, on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but as always, not speaking for the university, nor does it speak for me in its daily pronouncements, uh, whoever makes them. And likewise, our guest will surely speak only for himself. Legal things out of the way. It's good to take care of legal business first and make sure everything is above board, and then take care of the other important details, Uh, In the past, of course, in the spring, important details have included the storied exploits of the Greenville Stars girls' soccer team, which, alas, I'm no longer connected with as my children grow older year by year and join other teams now in high school or college, uh, high school soccer or college track teams. But that means I have more time on my hands, and I'm playing in an adult game. Uh, league at this time, uh, both indoor and outdoor leagues. And Civil War talk radio fans will be distressed to hear that uh, 
the ECU professor's team last night uh, was involved in a double forfeit, a game uh, canceled, uh, ended by the referee due to the chippy and indeed unsportsmanlike behavior of the players. I would maintain it was all the players on the other team, not us. Um, and since I know uh, my mother, among other people, is listening to this, I won't go into details as to what went on. Uh, nothing physical. Nobody was hurt. But there was some, some immature behavior by those those young fellows, those 20-somethings on the other team. And, and uh, well, no one wants to hear about that. We'll report back next week when we win a game and, and have something more interesting to say. Uh, but uh, the promotion uh, for the show, uh, which I, I made a comment about last week, the self-improvement show with the No More Mr. Nice Guy theme song, I guess I took that to heart uh, this week on the soccer field. Uh, the the uh, promotion, uh, I'll let uh, the engineers who work for our overlords at World Talk Radio know they're welcome to play that promotion or any promotion. They're all they're all fine, and uh, whichever one they, they play, I'll find something to comment on, so don't feel constrained to change those on my account. Uh, well, you're here to hear about the Civil War, both this week and in weeks to come. Next week, uh, appropriately, on April Fool's Day, April 1, uh, Joe Fulton will be joining us to talk about Mark Twain and his Civil War and Reconstruction experiences. Uh, the following week, Judkin Browning joins us to talk about East Carolina in the Civil War. He teaches at Appalachian State here in North Carolina and has written about uh, this end of the state. On April 15th, as we get to the anniversary of the beginning, 150th anniversary of the beginning of the war, Jamie Malinowski, who has been blogging the subject for the New York Times as though he were there 150 years ago, will be with us. No show the following week. It's Good Friday. And then on April 29, Jennifer Weber joins us to talk about Copperheads, the anti-war Democrats in the North, uh, a rescheduled show from uh, last December. We'll be looking forward to having her back with us. Tomorrow, if you're in the neighborhood, come out to Raleigh, North Carolina, the campus of East, no, this is East Carolina, the campus of our, uh, our rival North Carolina State University, where they will have a conference on public history of the Civil War, and I'll be presenting there uh, 9.15, I think, or 9.30 in the morning tomorrow. It's been a busy day today preparing that, uh, preparing uh, today's show teaching a couple classes and uh, very first thing in the morning doing presentation for the entire campus on whether East Carolina should add a doctoral degree program in its maritime archaeology unit, which is a uh, subset of the history department for some, some quirk of, of, uh, of historical events. We oversee the maritime archaeology people, and they do maritime history as well, and we're trying to get a doctoral degree in that uh, field, not in history. We, there are enough PhDs in history, uh, indeed far too many for the jobs available. But it turns out if you like to dive uh, for shipwrecks, including uh, wrecks like the Monitor, the Alabama, the Hunley, all of which ECU uh, maritime archaeologists have been involved in, uh, there's something to see. We'll have, uh, at some point, I've been trying for a year now to get Bill Still, founder of that, uh, the Maritime Archaeology Program, on the show. He's written about Confederate ironclads and uh, other naval history topics, and uh, we keep failing to cross paths, but I'll get Bill on the show to talk about that at some point, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. So, uh, 
last uh, bit of reminder, as always, is check out the website, impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney runs the show. If you buy a book through from Amazon by going through the link on that page, it will uh, help defray the cost of keeping that page afloat, and that helps us all find out what's going on on this show and what's been on in the past. So uh, please give him your support that way. And if you donate to the show, uh, through there, again, part of the proceeds go to the website, and part of them uh, just go right into my pocket. Uh, who knows what I will do with them? But what I will do is buy books that we read and talk about on the show. Today's book is a slender book, but highly illustrated, color illustrations of just what the title says, Patriotic Envelopes of the Civil War. The There is a, a long uh, established possibly apocryphal quote floating around uh, that says, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. I've heard it attributed to uh, Steve Martin, Elvis Costello, Thelonious Monk. I'm not sure who actually said it first. In some ways, uh, this visual topic today, these colorful envelopes of the war, uh, talking about them uh, will be like dancing about architecture, but we'll do some some, some excellent dancing, I predict. with the author of this book. His name is Stephen R. Boyd. And Dr. Boyd, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Happy to do it. Um, Can we go by first names? Do you go by Stephen or Steve? Steve Uh, is fine. Okay, and please call me Jerry. Okay. uh, uh, Everyone does. Okay. Um, Well, you, uh, according to the the blurb in the back here, uh, you and I have not crossed paths on the trail, so I'm just going by what I read, sure. uh, write about uh, uh, the Constitution, uh, right. political history, right. and uh, uh, and you teach at in Texas? Yes, at uh, the University of Texas at San Antonio. So uh, how do you get from uh, the Constitution to the envelope? Well, it's, it's uh, kind of a convoluted story. Most such stories are for historians our age, I suspect. About 20 years ago, I was reading uh, a book called uh, The Constitution in American Culture, and he makes the passing comment that there are virtually no images of the Constitution in American popular culture. And I said to myself, well, that's not exactly true, because I vaguely remembered as a high school student accumulating some uh, Union patriotic envelopes that included at least one or two that had images of the U.S. Constitution. So, and I said, gee, and I had just finished a book, and I was sort of casting about, thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I said, I wonder if there's anything there that hasn't been done. And then coincidence comes along, and simply because about that same time, uh, one of the Confederate philatelists published this uh, very uh, beautiful, very majestic uh, collect album or book of uh, Confederate patriotic envelopes, mostly printed in color. And I said, "Shoot, I could probably get some some research out of this and have a good time at the same in in the same fashion." So I, I began by looking at the Constitution and quickly discovered that there was so much material out there uh, and relatively accessible to historians. I said. Gee, I wonder what these things tell us more broadly about the war. Uh, and, and that's essentially how the project started, I hate to admit, more than uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> wow. Well, that, that, uh, uh, so often they do start that way, though. Uh, yes. Things come together in some fortuitous fashion. Yes. So this, um, 
Well, first, you mentioned, I think it was Michael Kamen who yes, said yes. Uh, nobody has, has pictured, or there are very few right. images of the Constitution. Right. Um, just to stay on that for, for a moment, uh, the, the Constitution really played a huge role in the, 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 uh, the, the political culture of the pre-Civil War United States in a way that we, we argue about it and talk about it, but we don't uh, fetishize it the way people did at that time. Is that accurate to say? I think so. Uh, you know, we all, you know, what, what Cayman is able to do is point out that, that we have extraordinarily uh, wide, different, and often exclusive, mutually exclusive concepts of what the Constitution is. Uh, whereas I think in the, in the 19th century, there's, there's probably a better understanding of what the document says. And with the exception of, you know, the debate about the, uh, the issue of slavery in the territories, there, you know, the Constitution is more immutable in a sense in the 19th century, at least in the popular mind, than it is in the 21st century. You know, after the Bill of Rights is adopted, you have only two amendments in the next 60 years, and both of those come very early. So it, it really does become almost our totem in some fashion. It's out there. We all believe in it. We, we talk about it. We all claim it, of course, as, as furthering or promoting or protecting or preserving what we whoever that we might be in the 19th century. But it does sort of, it, it is the, the piece that we all look to to affirm and, and legitimize that which we believe in as, as citizens of the Republic. Or, or the opposite, I guess, would be uh, William Lloyd Garrison burning, publicly burning a copy of it, right. uh, indicating uh, you know, rejection of those values. If, if you did that, I mean, today you can usually score points in an argument by demonstrating that your opponent does not know the, the Constitution from the Declaration of Independence. Right, and, uh, and there, yeah. that certainly happens on a regular basis. It, but, it does, but, but less so in the 19th century. Well, an illustration that, that I think will we'll make, you know, yes, Garrison burns the Constitution, says it's a pact with the devil and all of that, but a longer time ago I got intrigued with, I had, I had read, I came across a book by... Uh, Leland Baldwin, who was then a retired professor of history from Pittsburgh, and he wrote a book calling for a new constitution for the United States. And that got me off on, on this long hunt to see who all, during the course of the last two centuries, has said, you know, this country is going to hell in a handbasket. The problem is the constitution, and here's a new and better constitution for the United States. And the first of those doesn't show up until 1860. And there are only 13 of them that I was able to find, you know, with a really lengthy search of people who said, we need a new constitution, and here it is. So that before 1860, the constitution is, you know, it is worshipped, and, and there are no challenges at all. The war creates arguably two challengers, you know, one being a, a, a man out of... Uh, Oh, I've forgotten who was, what his name was, because uh, I haven't looked at that stuff for a long time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he says, look, we need a new constitution in the United States. And, in fact, he sort of adopts the Calhoun idea of, of uh, regional confederacies within a single United States as a way to protect the institution of slavery. But it all comes really in the 1890s and beyond that people actually get to the point where they're willing to say the constitution is the problem and here's what we need to do to get a, a new and better one. Uh, none of them go anywhere politically. You know, the only nominally successful challenge to the U.S. Constitution is the Confederate States Constitution, which its framers, as I read them, are saying, 
no, we're not trying to reject the Constitution of the U.S. at all. We're merely trying to, to preserve and protect the real one that's been corrupted by those, those Yankees over the, the last 60 years. Because the Confederate Constitution is, is very much 90% the same as, yes. as the United States Constitution. The, the biggest difference is, in fact, you know, the issue of slavery. Uh, there's, they change the, the office of the president. They they empower the states more in terms of uh, impeachment, for example, uh, but it is it's overwhelmingly slavery and then some other, I would say, peripheral issues. So when people in 1860 want to or 1861 want to express their loyalty to the Constitution uh, or the Confederate Constitution, for that matter, that brings us to these these envelopes that you. Right. Uh, uh, that, that you originally found and that you began looking for more. So did you find, uh, well, actually, let's maybe backtrack for the listener's point, point of view. Sure. How common was it to have an envelope with a printed design on it, uh, uh, su- such as a picture of the Constitution or a picture of a flag or a president? I, I would guess, and this is only a guess, but in the collections that I've looked through of, you know, of Civil War correspondence at various archives, for example, probably less than 2% of the envelopes that are preserved have, have an image of some kind on them. So in one sense, that number sounds very small. On, on the other hand, there are, there's some debate about it, but there's probably ten to 15,000 different Union design envelopes printed during the course of the war. I, I say 15,000 in my book, and, and some of my, my readers have said, uh, we think your number may be a little bit high, Stephen. And I say, well, let, you know, we can think about it some more. But ten to 12,000 at least different designs, all published by private sector printers across the North. Uh, you know, and the best illustration of how widely uh, circulated and saved they were is the fact that you can go on eBay today and buy them for less than $10 each unused. Uh, you know, people that, that collected them, saved them, and, and then they've been handed down to posterity. So the numbers of covers, in the one sense, were enormous uh, for the North. In the South, there's only about 250 different designs uh, published from you know Richmond to Galveston, uh, you know from uh, Memphis, Nashville down you know down to New Orleans. So they're across the South, but it's all done privately. It's all done by private you know printers, envelope designers, and the like. Uh, and in the South, they, you know, they don't actually sh- ever show the Confederate Constitution. They're focused predominantly on on uh, the the uh, Confederate, the first Confederate flag, uh, whether it had seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, or thirteen stars. That's that's the most common and widespread design of of, of Southern envelopes. Uh, the second most common are, are uh, images of Jefferson Davis, because for the South, these things date three-fourths from 1861 and basically 25% from 1862. They disappear in large measure by 1863 for a whole bunch of reasons. So both sides print these up. People buy them. They use them to send letters, presumably to soldiers and soldiers. Or, or send to them each back. other, you know, to other citizens. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're printed and sometimes bought by, uh, by uh, quartermasters and, and, and passed out to soldiers in camps and then sent, you know, sent home from the soldier to, to the, you know, the parents, the, 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 the wife, the sweetheart, whatever the case might be. But what I see as important in terms of what they tell us is that it's not a governmental-sponsored 
uh, activity at all. It is essentially a, a private enterprise uh, activity, and I, you know, and maybe that makes some difference in terms of, of imagery and design. The message isn't controlled from uh, Washington D.C. or Richmond or a state capital. Even it, it is strictly uh, the creative energies of of, of private printers. Uh, in part, saying, "Gee, what have I got in stock that's a design that I can adapt to." This new change situation called, you know, the war between the states has, because it's not really called the civil war, and you know, in, in, as as I read it, at least in '61, that's that's our creation as historians after the fact. So, so the uh, the popularity of these is really put out to the marketplace for people to yes. buy. Yes. We're going to talk more about that. We'll take a short break. Okay. We'll be back in just a moment talking with Stephen R. Boyd about patriotic envelopes of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market if you're looking for answers and solutions you don't have to look to expensive treatments consultations and methods all you have to do is listen to your connections Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Stephen R. Boyd of the University of Texas at San Antonio, who has written Patriotic Envelopes of the Civil War, the Iconography of Union and Confederate Covers. Uh, Covers is the term that collectors use to describe envelopes. I learned that when I worked in the Lincoln Museum back in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we had collections of patriotic covers, and I always felt that that I was an insider when I called them covers and not envelopes, Uh, so I still like to to do that uh, and show my my public history credentials that way. uh, Steve, one of the interesting things you mentioned right at the beginning of the book is the fact that envelopes were relatively new as a, a U.S. postal practice Yes. The Civil War began. Yes. Can you talk about that? Sure. The, before 1848, uh, postage was determined by the number of sheets of paper involved. So if you put a letter inside an envelope, you had to pay an extra fee for that container. So people simply generally folded a, a sheet of paper, addressed one portion of it, and mailed it that way. 
and the rate was five cents for I think up to 500 miles and 10 cents for for more than 500 miles. In 48, the the post office changed the system basically to allow for what we would you know what we are accustomed to envelopes. Began the process of prepaid postage rather than than having postage being sent, uh, you know, collect on delivery, and people immediately began to do some fairly elementary kinds of design on envelopes, uh, advertising predominantly. There's some wonderful uh, philatelic books of, of collections of advertising envelopes from the 1840s forward. Uh, by 1856, it actually spreads to include uh, campaign envelopes. I'm sure that at the Lincoln Library, you have copy, you know, you have some uh, Lincoln envelopes from 1860 and 1864. Mm-hmm. In which he's, you know, campaigning for president, and 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 that really escalates the the level of activity. Then the Civil War it just mushrooms; it just grows geometrically during the course of the war, as printers everywhere in the North it seems. Uh, you know, one of my favorite is from a you know from a printer in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, and the only reason we know he's in Omaha, Nebraska is he actually has his name on the on the edge of the envelope as a way to to promote and sell it. Uh, lithographers, book publishers, and envelope makers, which was a very specialized industry in the 1840s and 50s, uh, all will print and, and produce thousands of, uh, of patriotic envelopes, which they then sell and anywhere for a penny down per item. You can buy them, you know, 600 for $3 or whatever in, on some of the advertisements in the major cities. Uh, but you know they're very inexpensive. They're very popular as a way to show your patriotism to your neighbors. Uh, in the north, they're also saved as collector's items and special albums that are being produced in 1861. In the south, there are virtually no saved envelopes in the sense of the ones that weren't used simply because of the issue of uh, scarcity of paper. But the, I, you know they're just fascinating. They're 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 interesting. They're you know the, the the images, the iconography on them is is is, is great. They tell us a lot about uh, how people perceive the war. There, there's this wonderful competition between both the North and the South over who's going to claim Washington successfully as the you know as the model of their war for independence for the South or as the preserver of the American nation uh, and you know and, and for the North. Uh, so that it's you know there's a lot of point counterpoint uh, you know in Unintentionally between the northern and southern covers, as as they both contest for for the nation's history to support their cause, uh, they both use the same kinds of designs. In the sense, the flag is probably the most common design, both north and south. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned that uh, in our last segment that that these were produced by private companies. Right. So they're they're obviously out to sell the most. Uh, right. They, they want to make the thing that most people will buy. And I thought a striking example of that that you have in the book are the uh, the things you just mentioned here, the campaign uh, envelopes that the same company in 1860 produces uh, envelopes for all four presidential candidates. Right. Samuel Rayner so, of New York is one that does at least, yes. And then he's immediately converts over to Civil War patriotics and, you know, as soon as the the earliest Northern patriotic could actually be argued to be December of 1860, uh, where there's a publisher in Ohio that puts out poem covers, and many of those are copyrighted, and therefore you can date them. And, and there's one as early as December of 1860 talking about the Union, because that is the dominant theme of the Northern covers, is the preservation of the Union. Uh, Raynor 
takes some of his presidential covers, you know, takes the design off those, reworks them slightly, and makes them into, you know, to uh, patriotic covers in 1861, 1862, and apparently makes thousands and tens of thousands of images. I guess one can see how a company might produce things for for different candidates. It shows that the company is not partisan. They're just interested in selling envelopes regardless of who wins. As a side note, when I lived in Indiana, uh, it was supposed to have been... 2000, uh, year 2000, I, I ran for the state Senate. Uh, I think it was the only Democrat in Allen County, so I voted for myself. And uh, in doing that, uh, I found, I began getting drunk mail from uh, political sign dealers and right. bumper sticker makers, right. which followed me until I moved to North Carolina. Right. Uh, I, I would get this stuff all the time. And so there's a whole industry I became aware of, of people who make political paraphernalia, and they don't care which party you're with, they just want to sell you stuff. Right. right. And that's certainly the case then with these envelope makers. Did you find any who made stuff for both the North and the South? I, I, that's a, a touchy issue among the uh, you know, the stamp people. Uh, the, there's a group called the Confederate Stamp Alliance that has spent, and they've been around for about 75 years. They do a lot of research, a lot of study of individual envelopes. And some of those guys do think that there were covers designed in the North for use in the South. Uh, really? If so, that stops real early, because of course that you know it becomes they become a form of contraband and would would not be permitted. There are covers designed by Northern printers that have a Confederate flag on them, have a portrait of Jefferson Davis or Robert E. Lee. Uh, among others, though, you know, and but those appear to be designed solely for northern informational-educational purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's there's a wonderful newspaper story in San Francisco. Uh, I was reading some some newspapers where there's a story about sesh uh, envelopes being sold in San Francisco, and the editor of the newspaper is highly critical of of these things. Uh, and then the very next day, there's a report that the local military command had confiscated all of these, you know, these southern envelopes. I think they probably were, in fact, simply, prob- you know, made by a person like Charles Magnus, who was the biggest of the printers, more for information, you know, because, for example, the Davis portrait that's made says across the top "Secesh Chain," and it, you know, mm-hmm. it's in, in, in contrast to Union. Patriotic covers that you know met by the same company with with all of the prominent uh, military and, and civilian commanders in the North. Uh, the CSS change suggests that you know that Magnus's empathies are not particularly with the South, and I, mm-hmm. and they but and they do only circulate in the North. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, the Confederate Stamp Group. I'm I'm curious about this. Uh, in doing this research, you must have encountered uh, whole communities of people who collect. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've been to both, you know, I've been to the Confederate Stamp Alliance meetings, uh, and they've been very helpful in in that Confederate patriotic covers, A, are are very scarce, and B, very valuable. Uh, Lots of them get sold on on Internet auctions, however, from uh, from various philatelic auction houses, and they they were willing to, to give me permission to use their images, so I was able to do all the research for the Confederate side online essentially because all of these pieces you know when collections are broken up they're generally sold online mm-hmm. uh, and 
their focus is philatelic. They're interested in the cover in terms of the postal usage and the like, uh, whereas my interest is more cultural and historical in terms of trying to say what do the designs tell us. Uh, the American Philatelic Society is to some extent the counterpart to the CSA. It, it's, it's the American, it's American stamp collectors generally. And, but I've been to their library in Pennsylvania, for example, and used a lot of their materials to, to, to form the union half, of, if you will, of the book. Uh, it's not quite half and half. There's so much more union material that probably you know, two of my five chapters are proportionate, you know, disproportionately Confederate. The other three are, are almost exclusively union simply because of the nature of the material. Mm-hmm. My but wife I, at one point kept saying, well, Stephen, you don't talk at all about women in the Confederacy in your chapter on women. I said, honey, there's no data. <laughs> there, there's nothing there. There's I mean, no the information there in terms of the story, but it's hard to write much about it. Right, right. Uh, there's not much one can say beyond making that observation. Now, I, I mean, there were all kinds of things that, that came out as I was reading this that, that I had not known or thought about uh, in terms of, of uh, the mail services in the North and South. You mentioned another thing that sort of tossed in there that I wanted to ask you about. The demonetization of stamps in 1861, that, that if I understand correctly, immediately after secession, the United States it, it, it turned off the value of its stamp. All, all the Correct. existing stamps that were out there were declared worthless right. so that those in Confederate hands couldn't be used. Correct. And then they must have they must have reimbursed the actual post offices that still held stamps. Well, they, they simply I would have them return to, to, the, uh, to Washington, D.C., so you could, if you held a lot of stamps, you could get your money back, get new stamps, but Confederates obviously couldn't. Right, and, so and that was that, basically on purpose. It's just one of those things one doesn't think about, but right. the government can can push a button and say all that money you put into postage is now valueless. Right, and and what happened was, you know, up until I'm going to say June one, if I remember right, June one was the day that the postage was demonetized. Up till June 1, you'll actually see an occasional Confederate patriotic envelope with a 1857 U.S. three-cent stamp mailed to the North and canceled and postmarked and, and, and being delivered in, in the Northern mails. Uh, after June 1, it would you know that envelope would get uh, stamp not recognized or or due three or due five whatever the the, the rate might be. But you do have a fair number of, of Confederate envelopes being mailed north. Uh, one of my favorites shows a seven-star Confederate flag, and then the writer wrote in large letters on the envelope, "Our flag." You know, sort of poke it. You know, poke your finger in the eye of the person that's receiving your letter to mm. say, "This is our flag. No longer are we a part of that that thing that you guys have got." Uh, now, the other thing that happens in terms of uh, and it actually happens in, I'm not sure where Goldsboro, North Carolina, is compared to Grenville. I don't remember my North Carolina geography well enough. Uh, in 1864, I think it's the Battle of, uh, of um, oh, I'm just having a senior moment here. Uh, there's a the little town in North Carolina where the, there's a newspaper publisher there, the Bonnets Brothers, two German brothers, uh, and they the, they fight in the battle to defend that town against Union forces, but Union troops actually pick up some Confederate envelopes at, on the field of battle, uh, mail them home in the north, you know, and they you know they write disparaging comments on these envelopes about the Confederate flag and the like because they're on the envelope, uh, 
and Goldsboro is the town I'm trying to remember. I'm okay. a senior mm-hmm. moment. Uh, and the same thing is true. Occasionally you'll have a union cover with a, a Jefferson Davis Confederate stamp on it that had been picked up at the field of battle by a Confederate soldier and then used to write home to, to somebody in Alabama, Mississippi, wherever, with you know with the Confederate stamp on it. So you have a Abraham Lincoln cover, for example, with a, with a Jefferson Davis stamp. Uh. So these the soldiers use these uh, yes. uh, the people use them to express Absolutely. their opinions. We talked about the Constitution, right. uh, and, and you've mentioned Confederate flags as right. well. Uh, what other motifs were, were dominant that you found? Well, probably behind in the North, behind the uh, the American flag or state flags, because there's a tremendous amount of state flag coverage. Also, uh, most common would probably be. Uh, Either military, you know, military commanders. Although it goes all the way down to the rank of sergeant, there's some design envelopes for, that go, you know, all the generals, all the colonels. You know, Colonel Ellsworth shows up a lot, of course, because he's an early casualty. But it goes down all the way to to, uh, to some sergeants, and then there's what I would describe as generic, you know, uh, Union soldier covers, whether they're in camp or whether they're, you know, they're, they're standing around their tent. There's a few battle scenes that actually show battle scenes. So the, the military piece is, is a real important part of all of this in terms of, of design work. Uh, some of the most interesting stuff, the stuff that I actually put off writing about the longest because I was so hard-pressed to figure out how I was going to present it, in the North there's about 100 different covers that that portray African Americans, all slaves, all anonymous in the sense that none of them are identified as individual people, but you know and and a lot of them are pretty racist by you know by our modern standard accentuated features and black language and all of that. But when I finally sat down and, and looked at all of these images, I said, gee, what these things show me is they they show a the humanity of African Americans in ways that surprised me. The virulent racism of the late 19th century doesn't really show up in the same way on these covers, and it shows what I call what I describe as self-emancipation. It shows lots of black men, women, and children either fleeing toward Fortress Monroe, you know, or or making sort of snide comments to their masters about you know about liberty and freedom. Uh, and, and, and African Americans offering their services, for example, the General Butler. They're saying, you know, we know how to, how to deal with all of these things and let us serve. So the image of blacks on the Union patriotic covers is actually much more positive than we would have expected. Uh, in the South, there's only two or three covers that show African Americans and that shows them as slaves, and it shows them in that sort of uh, courier and knives, quote-unquote, happy and contented slaves genre. Uh, you know, it shows some, you know, some men working in the fields. It shows some men uh, working on the docks. But, you know, but slavery is not very much a part of, of the Confederate covers, with the exception of these Bonnets brothers in Goldsboro, who, in fact, do are the one printer that puts slavery at the center of the debate for the South, that this is a war about slavery. Most of the other covers t- tend to downplay the slavery issue. 
And how do they portray it in their covers? Well, they they do it mostly in verse, you know, and they say, you know, that you know that it's you know it's it's about it's better to 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 die for freedom, you know, and and uh, and than to die as a as a Yankee slave. They use the N word a lot in in terms of of this is an attack by the North to to destroy our social structure, to destroy our slavery, and to put you know to enslave us. There's a, a caricature cover that actually shows a picture of Jefferson Davis and a black man, and it shows part of it says uh, let's see Jeff Davis as he is in 1861, uh, and they call him the dictator, and then it shows him in 1865 in a field being supervised by a, a sort of a dandy black man dressed up in, in fancy clothes, and he's the dictator, or he's digging potatoes under the supervision of a black man. You know, so the, the, the North is much more willing to talk about slavery and, and, and to satirize the, the South in terms of what's going to come. You're going to see your world turned upside down. Uh, the South... With the exception of the Bonnets brothers, you know, and they don't have any images of slaves particularly, but they do talk about it's either us and our slaves, or we're going to be enslaved, and it's better to die than to face that fate. Well, the, the North does use, uh, as you say, humor and, and caricature needs. The, the one of the uh, the, the African American woman running with a bundle on her back right. is just labeled secession. Right. Uh, she's going to secede from slavery uh, right. unilaterally. There's We're going to take another short break things. now. We'll be right back okay. again after a short intermission talking with Stephen R. Boyd about patriotic envelopes of the Civil War. This is Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. We all lead busy lives, and sometimes we think we can't take care of our health. We battle food addictions, time restrictions, and media conflictions when it comes to our health. Now, you can tune in to the Dare to Be Healthy Show with host Alia Almoayed. Good health comes to those who dare to take the leap into the amazing world of natural healing. Find out what it's like to look and feel great. And finally, live your life to its maximum potential. Let Alia and her guests show you how. Dare to Be Healthy is broadcast live Mondays at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are looking to get started or are currently operating a home-based business, you might be looking for answers. What are the risks? What business should I get started in? How will I market my business? How do I balance my professional life with my other life? For answers, you need to tune into The Home-Based Business Show with Helene Leontzos. Each week, we'll bring you a step-by-step practical guide to starting and maintaining your home-based business. Listen every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Stephen Boyd about patriotic envelopes of the Civil War, uh, a subject that uh, historians have, uh, to a large degree, overlooked in the quest to read Civil War soldiers' letters 
it's most of us who've done that in archives at some point have noticed occasionally that the letter will be contained in an envelope with a union, usually a union theme design on it, maybe a flag, maybe a picture of a soldier. Uh, but no one has really looked at this systematically. Who printed these and what was the purpose of these uh, of these designs? Why did they think people would buy them and what did what did people mean by them? And and uh, in in this book, Patriotic Envelopes, uh, you get uh, a large number of color illustrations that show exactly what these things look like that we're talking about today, and uh, a sense of how they functioned uh, in some ways like bumper stickers of the era, ephemeral, uh, easily lost, uh, uh, but inexpensive ways to make your viewpoint known to your community, to people uh, who would see these. The uh, the mail system, I, I know in, in Lincoln's time, when he was a postmaster in the 1830s, he just sat around the, the post office and people came in to get their mail. The, the mail was not delivered to people's homes. And uh, I'm assuming that that would still largely be the case in the 1860s. So you could go to the post office and see a lot of people's envelopes sitting around there. Is, is that accurate? I think so. The, the, the place that, that we know for sure people see envelopes are in the cities because there's commentary about walking past a bookseller or past a, a, a lot of other places where, you, where there will be a large number of them on display. So you know, the vendors are, you know, will put out a display window that may have 100, 200, 300 different designs in, in the larger cities. But even in the smaller cities, apparently the newspaper office, the local printer, if there was one, uh, if it's a river town, there, there's there's advertisements saying that you know you can get them at the at the wherever you're selling tickets apparently to get on the steamboat because I don't even know how that's done in fact. But they're 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 pervasive. There's also lots of comment in the post office uh, press about patriotic envelopes, envelope mania, and the like in 1861-62 particularly. Uh, so it, and then there's occasional reference uh, in in letters uh, from soldiers home to the fact that they that that they are their their quartermaster's office delivered envelopes and gave them envelopes free that they had acquired. So they're 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 widely available. Uh, people use them. You know, they save them. Uh, and and you know, it's the bumper sticker analogy. I think is absolutely correct. You know that we it's a way to say to your you know to your neighbors or to whoever sees your mail. Uh, you know, I I'm I'm on the right side on this issue uh, in in some fashion. I thought it was uh, you mentioned quartermasters, and right. one thing that struck me among all these designs, which in terms of graphic design resemble what you'd think of when you think of. 19, mid 19th century prints, uh, the, the iconography of the day, the uh, lithographs, and so on. Sure. But one of them that you show here is from the uh, uh, Second Division, Second Corps of the Army of the Potomac, which of course used as its emblem the clover after right. after Hooker introduced the corps emblems in '63. So it's just a, a an outline of a clover, and it's much more bold and almost modern uh, graphic design. It really catches the eye. But it also made me think, well, they, that's for the men in that unit. You're not going to correct. That's correct. a fairly limited audience, but uh, individual units, at least down to the division level at some point, uh, must have made their own envelopes or had them well, printed. They, they purchased them, certainly. We, uh, I, recently, I was looking at some of the Civil War uh, records of um, 
persons you know who did business with with the, with the Confederate government during the war, and and those records are all now available online. And there, I've found three or four instances where a printer or a officer, a lieutenant, or a captain in an individual unit is transmitting payment for four boxes of envelopes, for example, and and. Uh, one of them was, a set, I think, was the Seventh Alabama, where I'm looking at a letter to the printer in Mississippi, and we know that he published or printed an envelope for the Seventh Alabama. So here's the correspondent saying, "Thank you for the envelopes that you designed and sold us," and and that's how they would. You know, and, and there's, I've come across maybe four or five different examples where I know that. Uh, soldiers an officer in an individual unit is writing to a publisher saying can you prepare us a particular envelope uh, often what that printer would do is he would take an envelope that he's already designed and simply add an overstamp onto it that says 7th Alabama you know or New York you know rifles or, or zouaves or whatever the case might be but all of, you know that that's the closest you get to any governmental involvement is essentially individual you know officers purchasing material from printers for their men to then be able to write home now, you make the point that early in the war you see more envelopes with uh, individual soldiers portrayed not right. not not a named individual but a single soldier right. uh, and that later in the war you see these unit envelopes and, and envelopes that portray Units or, or masses right, of right. men, uh, and and you argue there that this reflects a changing view of the war, much as, as Gerald Linderman has done and others right. uh, over time. Is well, I'll, I'll put it this way: Is that working the material too hard, or is that really what we can see here? Well, I, I you know I, I as, you know when we first started talking, you know I'm a constitutional historian, so I I didn't really come at this with any preconceived notions of <clears throat> what I might find, and certainly I had mm-hmm. read some Linderman, I've read McPherson, I've read you know a. Some of the Civil War material, and that, you know, if you read it all, you'll never get anything written yourself. <laughs> True. Uh, but what you know, I also had one of my former students' great great grandfather served in the Michigan Ninth, and he wrote home every chance he could for four years to his parents and to his fiance. And you know, when when he writes home initially, he talks all about the boys from Flint. Eventually, he talks about your soldier, and by the end of the war, he's actually, you know, he, I, what I argue is that, in fact, his identity and the identity of the army is transformed, and that in 63, when you become a corps, you know, the idea that you're the boys from Flint or the boys from Dubuque or whatever has been transformed into you're the corps and, and those envelopes that, that, you know, that are for a particular unit and then list their battles create a group identity that is even broader by the very end of the war. By the end of the war, Edward Richard Chase, this guy from Michigan, you know, writes home as your soldier and soon veteran. You know, and so I think there's a real transformation in the identity of how men perceive themselves and how the community perceives them. They were originally your, you know, your neighbor's kids and your own kids. By the end of the war, they're, they're a very different group. Is, is how I read it, yeah. And and, and this, I, I guess one, if one tried to make that argument just based on, on patriotic covers, it might be a stretch. But if you find that 
but, but if you take a broader base of evidence and then you look at the covers, again, coming at it without right. any preconception, right. and you find it confirms that, that is pretty powerful stuff. I, you know, I, I, I wrote that, so of course, I, you know, and I don't want to sound defensive, but I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I looked at, you know, well, when I started this book, the idea that I would actually write a chapter about male identity, if somebody had told me that, I would have said, you've got to be kidding. But, you know, as I always say to my students, a good social scientist allows the data to drive their analysis. And that data said to me, Stephen, there's something here that you can talk about, you should talk about, because it's an important part of the, of the puzzle. So, you know, it wasn't, when I go back and look at my original outlines of what this book might look like, there's nothing on male identity or, or any of that. But as I kept pouring over the stuff, it just kept coming back to me, there's something there that I need to pay attention to. Well, I, I, I would have had the same reaction if, if I'd been told, uh, in this book you'll see how envelopes reflect male identity, I would have been skeptical, uh, sure. but I just read the book, and, and uh, I tell my students the same thing. The, the, uh, a lawyer starts with a conclusion and then looks for cases to support it. A historian uh, starts with the evidence and then draws a conclusion from it. You can't... Uh, you, you, you can't prejudge this, and if that's where it takes you, that's where it takes you. Right. The um, well, I, I don't want to run out of time without asking about one of my favorite uh, envelopes or sequence of envelopes, uh, and yeah. there were several of them. The uh, Lincoln and Jeff Davis boxing matches. Right. Right. Um, there are there are. I recall seeing lithographs of the same thing when I worked at the Lincoln Museum, uh, and seeing these here. Where did you come across these? Or, or, or what, what do they say to you? Tell me. Tell us about these. Uh... These are a set of five what we call full-face envelopes because the entire one side of the entire envelope shows a boxing match, rounds one, two, three, four, and five between a very distinguished and statesman-looking Abraham Lincoln and a almost ape-like-looking Jefferson Davis. Uh, behind them on, on the centered side are, are, are Davis's military commanders, uh, his civilian support, and some slaves sort of in the background watching the whole thing. There's some Confederate mastiffs down in the front. Uh, and then on, on the Union side, there, you know, there's, again, the, the civilian leadership you know, behind Lincoln as well as Union soldiers. And you go through five rounds in which ultimately Davis is defeated and, and flees toward Richmond. Uh, those were, print, were printed in New Jersey. That particular sets at the uh, Postal History Museum of the Smithsonian. Uh, they have them on, on display now there, because <clears throat> I went and looked at their collection as well early on in this process to see what I could, could see. Uh, I think that this whole boxing ring is a way to try to uh, humanize or to try to, you know, to try to allow people to get some comprehension of what this war is all about. It's such an enormous thing that they, they try to personalize it down to a boxing match between Lincoln and Davis as a way for individuals at home to grasp this thing. Uh, the, we know the name of the publisher of them. Uh, we know he was in New Jersey. Uh, and, and there's a fair number of that particular set of five envelopes out there. You know, they've, they've surfaced periodically in different collections and in different uh, auction houses, for example. But it's a, it's a fairly common motif, and, and I simply see it as, you know, as, as I suggest, as a way to, to, to grasp what's going on here in a way that otherwise is so difficult for people to comprehend. 
Yeah, something like that with, with, with that obvious historical interest ends up, as you say, in the Smithsonian, or at least one sample of it does. Uh, but early on, you mentioned that, that some of these covers are so common that you can buy them uh, inexpensively, under $20 oh, uh, on eBay. Right. Uh, do you collect yourself? I, I acquired a fair number of these things during the course of, of, of writing the book because lots of the Union covers are so common that I couldn't get an online image anywhere. So I went to a stamp show in Chicago one year and, and bought all the co- you know, I had a I had a book that shows all of these things in black and white, but I wanted all color images. The original plan was that they would each be embedded in the text right above where I was discussing them, but I that didn't work out because of the costs of production. But I, I ended up buying a fair number because I couldn't get the color image any other way. Uh, I had one from my high school years that I had saved all the years, and, and that one actually got, I put it on the cover of the book along with a lot of other images because I liked it. You know, it had some sentimental attachment. But I am. Oh, which one is that? As I'm it, it down in the people. lower right on the cover, there's one that shows a, a red, white, and blue Abraham Lincoln sort of surround. You know, there's two little uh, flags in front of yes. him and an eagle above him. Very, very good. You know, very and, good. And, and that one, I, you know, that one I'll always save simply because I've had it for 50 years now, and I like it. It's just a neat piece. Uh, I don't own any Confederate ones because they're just too expensive uh, and, and too desirable. And I, I'm not a philatelist, you know, and the, and the stamp people would say that's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, that, that is another world. And I'm guessing there's a show on, on talk radio, uh, World Talk Radio, somewhere for stamp collectors, but... Uh, but this is not it. Uh, our, we talk here about the, the Civil War, uh, and as we do every week, we run out of time talking about the war. <laughs> so, uh, Stephen, I want to thank you very much for being on the show today. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Listeners, uh, you will be surprised how much there is to learn, uh, how much you can learn from this very interesting book, Patriotic Envelopes of the Civil War. You'll want to take a look at it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.